He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, good morning, Mars Hill. My name is Kyle Lake, and I serve as the pastor to our high school ministry and as our family life director. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, Today marks the second Sunday of Advent, which means that many of you are well into your Amy Grant Power Hour, uh, especially given the series that we are in here uh, with Isaiah 9 verse 6. And others of you find yourselves scrolling mindlessly through Netflix, looking at cheesy Christmas movies to satisfy uh, this particular season for you. And my question to you is, why have you forsaken your first love? There are so many great Christmas classics out there. Uh, Don't torture yourself. Watch Home Alone again and again. Uh, Watch White Christmas. Watch It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Even watch The Holiday. There are so many great movies uh, for you to watch in this particular season. Uh, But Advent, as Troy pointed out to us last week, uh, invites us to look into the past, into uh, the birth of Jesus, into this text in Isaiah, and at the same time invites us to look to the future, to Jesus' coming again. And so with that, let's pray. O God of light and wisdom, We invite you in this season of waiting uh, to shine your light once again into our world. Illuminate for us in this passage new meanings, new reasons for hope, new ways of peace, new ways to love. And God, above all, illuminate for us the gift of your son Jesus in our world today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a few months ago, I started noticing on my Facebook feed something interesting that was popping up in between recipes that my friends were posting. It was Late summer, early fall, so there was uh, the postings about back to school and what's happening. There were even a handful of political postings. But woven into those things were videos of the world's strongest man competition. Now, I'm not sure what algorithm Facebook is using to identify me as someone who would be interested in these kinds of videos. After all, much of my search history involves Bible facts, running shoe reviews, and plant-based diets. But whatever algorithm they were using, it worked. I was so caught up and mesmerized by these acts of, of strength by these mighty men. Uh, This boulder lifting, car pushing, metal barrel chucking kind of activity. And I couldn't take my eyes off of it, which of course meant they kept showing up in my feed again and again. 
Now, these kinds of mighty men are perhaps what the people of Judah were hoping for and looking for in this particular time and season that Isaiah's prophecy comes to us. You see, it was the mid to late 700s BC. And by this time, the United Kingdom of Israel had split into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom that was called Israel, and its capital was in Samaria. And there was the southern kingdom of Judah, and its capital city was Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom was ruled by a king named Pekah at this time. And he and their neighbor to the north, Aram, decide to lay siege to Judah and the city of Jerusalem during the time of King Ahaz. Now, we don't have a lot of detail about why they laid siege, what their plan was, what they were even trying to do, uh, but we hear that they are approaching Jerusalem, and the king of Judah at the time, Ahaz, has a decision to make. And so he cuts a deal with the new global superpower on the scene, the Assyrians, who were mighty in their military prowess, who had new technology, but were also extremely brutal in the way that they treated their captives. And Ahaz essentially has to sacrifice the economy of Judah, paying tribute at the feet of the king of Assyria to keep Israel and Aram at bay. And if that isn't cause for enough concern, things within Judah aren't much better. Here in 2 Kings chapter 16, we hear a little bit about the rule and the reign of King Ahaz. It says, beginning in verse 1, in the 17th year of Pekah, son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, engaging in detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. And so as much as there was chaos and destruction happening all around the people of Judah, within the country itself, things weren't much better. Ahaz had gone off and pursued other gods, following in their ways, even to the place of child sacrifice. And it's in this context that Isaiah's words here in chapter 9, verse 6 come to us. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so the people of Judah, we could say, were in a time of Advent. A time of waiting for a new king. 
a time waiting for a king who would be mighty in battle to protect them from their enemies, to provide a sense of security. Mighty in battle like David who slayed the mighty Philistine warrior Goliath. Mighty like David's mighty men. But also mighty in leadership, in justice and righteousness like Boaz in the story of Ruth. Because the odds were stacked against them. Time was running out and they weren't in a good place. And they were looking for someone to come and to save them. They were in a season of Advent. Waiting for God to do what God had long promised. To establish on David's throne a new king who would reign with righteousness and justice. To establish a kingdom of blessing and peace. To get a little breathing room in their lives in the midst of all of this chaos and destruction. And I imagine that for some of us this morning, we find ourselves in a similar place of advent. Of waiting. Of longing for God to show up in a mighty way. I know that I find myself longing for God to show up in mighty acts of healing as I hear about the growing number of students wrestling with crippling mental health issues in this particular season. I long for a mighty God to show up in the lives of friends and community members and coworkers who are suffering from physical ailments. I long for a mighty God to show up with justice and righteousness in a world that seems all out of sorts. And I long for mighty acts of empathy and unity within our community as we find ourselves in this interim time and wondering what does it look like to be a worshiping community in a pandemic. And for myself, I long for mighty acts of transformation as all too often I find myself stretching my capacity for grace and patience and understanding more often than I desire. Where is the mighty king? Where is the mighty God to whom Isaiah speaks of? Where is the one who is able to do mesmerizing acts? The one to whom it was written, I sing the mighty power of God who made the mountains rise, who filled the seas below and built the lofty skies. Where is the one to whom uh, the scriptures speak, brought the people of Israel out of the house of slavery with mighty acts? Where is the one to whom Isaiah speaks? For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. In Advent, we wait. And so in that particular experience and moment, these words from Isaiah, this prophecy is a breath of fresh air. It provides a a taste of hope. 
It provides a bit of good news for the people of Judah and perhaps for the people of Israel as well. It's a royal announcement of a birth. But as much as it's a royal announcement of a birth, it's also importantly the announcement of a new king. Similar to the nations around the people of Judah and Israel at the time, this kind of language of a son being given, of being called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, were ways of talking about a coronation ceremony. They were used to talk about the time when a king would ascend to the throne. And although Judah experienced this when Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, took the throne and they, they found themselves a bit of reprieve, a bit of a corrective as he followed in the ways of his father David and the commandments of the Lord. Eventually for them, time would also run out and they would be sent into exile. And once again, the people dwelled in Advent and in Advent, we wait. But just as Isaiah's prophecy comes to a people living, dwelling in a land of deep darkness, hundreds of years later, we would hear an echo to another people in darkness. In the darkness of the night, mighty messengers would speak another prophecy of good news. Another royal announcement that do not be afraid, for I bring you news of great joy, that today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And although Isaiah may not have originally intended his prophecy and his words to speak about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, the beauty of scripture and the power of God is that words spoken in the past, words of old, gain fresh and new understanding in the person of Jesus. And so we understand these words in Isaiah to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That in Jesus, a decisive word has been spoken. A definitive conclusion has been made. A divine yes about creation and about all of humankind has been shouted and echoes through all time and space that there is a new king in the land. And so we understand these words of Isaiah to speak about the birth of Jesus. But similar to how these words of Isaiah spoke not only about a birth, but a coronation, we see that in Jesus, there is also a coronation. That he is the new king. And the moment that this comes to fruition, this comes to its fullness in the New Testament, that Jesus is revealed as Israel's long-awaited king. And the world's true Lord and Messiah is on Good Friday and Easter morning. And this is the paradox of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
that this is the moment when we see that he shall be called mighty God happens when it looks like Jesus is most weak. That it looks like that time has run out. That the powers at play have won again. But in Jesus' death and resurrection, we see God in his fullness. That Jesus entering into the fullness of human experience is shown to be the mighty God who overcomes what appears to be the final word for all of life. Death itself. Jesus is the long-awaited mighty God. He's the long-awaited king. In the 1460s, in San Sepulcro, Italy, a painter by the name of Piero della Francesca painted this decisive moment in a painting known as The Resurrection. And the great American poet Wendell Berry had an opportunity to visit this particular painting and later in the year wrote a poem about his time with this painting. And the opening words of this poem say this. Early this year, by a friend's gift, I saw in San Sepulcro Piero's vision, the soldiers who guard the dead from the living, themselves become as dead men. One tumbling dazedly backward, Awake, his wounds bleeding still, his foot upon the tomb. Christ, who bore our life to its most wretched end. And having cast off like a blanket, its heavy lid stands. Awake, Christ stands. This is the decisive moment when we see mighty God coming into his coronation ceremony, into the fullness of who he is. And yet in this season of Advent, as we proclaim, awake, Christ stands, we also live in the tension that the world is still not as it should be. That in our lives we experience Death and pain and suffering and brokenness and heartache. And I would imagine there's some of us who have experienced this more recently than others this Advent season. Who have felt the strong and painful sting of death because of COVID or cancer or illness or tragedy or age. And yet others of us have felt the sting of loss, loss of a job, loss of a relationship, the loss of a season of preparation and hard work that wasn't able to come to fruition, loss of financial stability, loss of the first semester at college and the experience of living away from home 
the loss of a particular sports season that we had been preparing for and excited about. And so, in Advent, we wait. And for those of you who find yourself in the tension of Advent this morning, as much as we proclaim awake, Christ stands. We also proclaim that as mighty as God was in raising Jesus from the dead, so too God is mighty in coming to us in the midst of our experience of loss and brokenness. That in some mysterious ways, those places, those places of heartache, those places of death, those places of bearing our own crosses are the exact places where we experience the ministering of God in Jesus Christ. For God entered into all of human existence in order that no place remains untouched that no experience is by itself. And that in that moment, God is with us. That God is there. And so in Advent, we wait. But we do not wait alone. A few years ago, I was reading through C.S. Lewis's magnum opus, the Chronicles of Narnia, book one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this particular book, I was so caught up and moved uh, by the end of the story that Aslan, the Christ figure in the story, uh, puts himself in a place where he gives himself up for the boy Edmund, who is to face the penalty for betraying his friends and companions. And so Edmund, or, and so Aslan is led off to suffer under the power of the white witch, to be killed on the stone altar. And it's the morning following this ceremony in which Aslan has been killed that the the heroines of the story, Susan and Lucy, come and are weeping over Aslan. And in a moment of sheer joy and mystery and confusion, the stone ta table breaks. And they find that Aslan is no longer dead, but is alive. And they wonder, what does this all mean? And Aslan speaks these words to, to them. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery 
was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. That death itself would start working backward. Because Jesus is the one foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Because he is indeed the mighty one, the mighty God. And he, awake, Christ stands. That we know that death itself has started working backward. And so in Advent time, and in particular this Advent season, more than ever, we take notice that death has started working backward. And so in the midst of sorrow and heartache, we yet have joy. And in the midst of hatred, we yet love. And in the midst of chaos and destruction, we yet have peace. And in the midst of despair, we yet have hope. For we know that there is another coronation ceremony that is coming up the road. And we can see the banner of the king in the distance. And we can hear the sound of the saints of old and the saints of new singing the beautiful vision of John. For the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so we come to the table this day with that in mind. With that story that though death and darkness and brokenness and heartache still exist, that there is one who is coming who will make all things new. And it's to that one that uh, we look to this feast. For in this particular moment, when we come to this table, Christ the King feasts with us. And so this table points to the past of that feast that he had with his disciples. And it points to the future of the feast that he will have with us when he indeed comes and makes the kingdom of the world his kingdom. And so we say, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks and blessing it, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, after they had eaten dinner and they were filled, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. And whenever you take it and drink it, you do so in remembrance of me. 
And so whenever we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until we come again. We proclaim the death of Jesus as the decisive moment in which when it appears he is most weak, he is indeed mighty. And so we pray, send your Holy Spirit that the bread that we eat and the cup that we bless would be to us the body and the blood of Christ. And that in receiving these gifts, we would be joined to your very fabric, a fabric of love and hope. And so God, as many grains have been gathered into this one loaf, and grapes from many vines and many hills into this one cup. May you too gather your church into your presence. Come, Lord Jesus. And so together, as we come to this table, we proclaim the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so come, take, eat, come, savor and feast, for the Lord is present, the Lord is at hand, and he is mighty to save.